in jails across the country, people um, are released daily. Thousands of people are released daily. Um, there are people who work in these institutions who go home to their families. And so when we think about it spreading, when it spreads inside a correctional institution, when it spreads inside inside of a jail or a prison, that has implications for everybody outside of it as well. You're listening to Works of Justice, a podcast by PEN America. The news is playing an important role in the COVID-19 pandemic. It's keeping us informed, holding power to account, and creating an expansive archive of global tragedies and victories. But it can also feel overwhelming. As our understanding of the virus emerges and as policy adjusts in response, what we know changes often dramatically hour to hour and sometimes minute to minute. In her role as president of the criminal justice-focused news organization, The Appeal, and as co-host of the podcast, Justice in America with Clint Smith, Josie Duffy Rice understands the impact of news better than most. Seeking clarity for our own small contribution to pandemic era reporting, I asked Josie for some advice. What's journalism's role in this historical moment? What criminal justice news items should we be looking for? And needing it myself, how can we stay sane in the process? I'm Kate Camel, PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program intern, and you're listening to our new rapid response series, Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars. Josie, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You're both a lawyer and a journalist. I'm curious about what led you to focus on criminal justice work. Can you tell listeners a bit about the appeal in your path to becoming president of the publication? Sure. So I um, became a lawyer because of criminal justice. Um, because of criminal justice work, I worked for the public defender in the Bronx right after I left college about ten years ago, um, and that was a really life-changing experience for me and led me to go to law school. Um, in law school, I did a lot of freelance writing and discovered that I liked writing more than I liked lawyering. So um, I've, over time, since I graduated from law school, I've had jobs doing criminal justice work in basically a, a lot of different ways from like policy and um, activism to kind of changing, switching towards journalism and eventually um, coming president of the appeal. Uh, I joined the Justice Collaborative, which is the umbrella organization that The Appeal lives under, about three years ago, and I've done a lot of different work for them um, over that time. Um, And about 10 months ago, got named president of The Appeal, and I've been writing for The Appeal since it started, which was about two years ago. Um, So it's been a really incredible experience. and I love working at The Appeal. We have such a great team, and I'm really honored to, to, be, to be part of it. In this moment of pandemic upheaval, it seems many are both grateful for and overwhelmed by the news cycle. Some might be at a loss about where to begin or how to stay up to date. You have quite a bit of experience parsing through the news to decide which stories are important. What are some of the most pressing issues being reported on at the intersection of COVID-19 and the criminal justice system? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. What we know about the coronavirus, right, is that it's like highly contagious and that um, 
when we think about the criminal justice system, we don't often realize that the people in it can impact the people out of it. Um, what we know right now is that it's spreading pretty rapidly in institutions and in correctional institutions across the country and jails, prisons, immigration detention centers. Um, and what that, that, that really, I mean, just on a human rights level, that's very, very concerning. Um, the fact that people who are basically trapped in a cell um, are getting a, a contagious virus and cannot socially distance, cannot do anything to protect themselves. But then the other part of this is that, like, we, you know, people who are in prisons and jails um, eventually get out, right? In jails across the country, people um, are released daily. Thousands of people are released daily. Um, there are people who work in these institutions, who go home to their families. And so when we think about it spreading, when it spreads inside a correctional institution, when it spreads inside inside of a jail or a prison, that has implications for everybody outside of it as well, right? If someone, um, you know, a, a prison guard go gets it and goes home to their family, they're spreading it to their family who may spread it to other people. If someone who is actually serving time gets it and and, and gets out there, they also are spreading it. Um, so beyond the implications it has for people inside of these institutions, it also has pretty significant implications for those outside. And I think that's a pretty pressing issue. I would say the other issues that, you know, really um, we're focused on right now is just driving home the inhumanity of these systems and how a pandemic really um, puts that on, on display. When you talk about the fact that we have a virus that has killed upwards of 10,000 people in our country so far, um, you know, that where the rate is higher in New York City than it is anywhere else, and the rate in Rikers Island is 10 times higher than it is in New York City, people in jail and prison, um, and those in jails, many of whom have not even been convicted of a crime yet, uh, are, are paying the ultimate price in a way that they kind of consistently have throughout this era of mass incarceration. Um, and it really brings to head the fact that these systems are um, fundamentally inhumane, that they don't have the sort of health care and human rights protections that they should, and what that means in a time of, of, of mass illness like the one that we're currently living in. Right. So it sounds like this crisis is really exposing the inhumanity that's always existed within the system. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping you might be willing to offer listeners a bit of the behind the curtains process. I'm curious what it's been like to pivot your publication in response to COVID-19. I can imagine that with prison lockdowns affecting access to communication systems, it's probably been more challenging to get in touch with sources on the inside as one example. Can you tell us what a digital newsroom looks like in the time of coronavirus? Sure. So um, I should say we have just an unbelievable editor-in-chief. His name is Matt Ferner. He's, I mean, I just couldn't ask for any better sort of partner in this process. He um, did an incredible job kind of preparing our staff um, to pivot to COVID-19 and has really done a great job of um, centering the coverage around the issues that really matter. We also just have, I mean, I can't say enough good things about our staff from the writers who have stepped up just unbelievably and are 
um, are, are, you know, pivoted to a topic that like they didn't know that much about and nobody knew that much about and are covering it with the sort of, um, with the dexterity that, that, uh, you know, is sometimes just unbelievable and how great it is. And then we have incredible editors. We have an incredible, um, you know, copywriting staff. We have incredible fact checkers. We just have, um, the, a, a staff that has like really met the moment. And so, I mean, the first thing that any digital newsroom needs, right, is good people. And we've been blessed beyond belief to have an incredible, incredible team. Um, and then beyond that, like it, it absolutely has kind of changed the way that we cover stories and that like systems are shut down. People can't go outside and report, right? Um, it, everybody's kind of priorities have shifted. Sometimes it's harder to actually reach the people that you need to reach. Sometimes um, getting inside sources, like you said, is virtually impossible. And I think the number of stories that are possible to come out of something like this are so numerous because this disease is spreading, this virus is spreading in prisons and jails again everywhere across the country, right? And so we've relied a lot on um, on the our incredible freelancers also who have like, you know, find kind of stories on their own and pitch them to us. Um, and we've are building a, a sort of new base of sources um, that's not just people who are experts on criminal justice, right? But on housing, on um, healthcare, on the general concern of a shared vulnerability that we're all experiencing right now. Um, we recognize that in a moment like this, um, when there's a pandemic spreading across the country, that two things are true and they both seem kind of, they seem opposite of each other, right? But they both sort of exist. One is that we're all at risk right now. Um, there's nobody who, uh, can't catch this virus or, or knows exactly what's going to happen to them when they catch this virus. No age um, is immune, even though obviously the younger you are, the better chance of having a mild reaction. Um, and everybody is sort of uncertain and having to follow these sort of new social guidelines in order to keep us all safe. And so there is this sense of shared vulnerability. And there's also this sense that at the same time, this pandemic highlights the inequality that exists um, that already exists through our country, class inequality, race inequality, um, uh, you know, access inequality, right? Like people who actually can afford to go to the doctor and people who can't, or people who can have the opportunity of working from home and people who don't. Um, and we find it critical to kind of tell those stories as well. So this moment has required us to kind of expand beyond criminal justice and also into other sort of societal issues that highlight um, the harms that exist in a time like this. So in thinking about how inequality within the criminal justice system is now more on display um, as listeners are consuming the news, perhaps a good question to have in the back of their minds would be, what can Americans learn from this moment in regards to criminal justice reform that we can carry out beyond the pandemic timeframe? So I would say that there's so much you can learn from this moment, right, in terms of criminal justice. There really is so much. And one of them is that you can see for yourself just how... Um, how callous people in in 
leadership positions, everyone from governors to prison system officials to the president are when it comes to addressing the possible infection of people serving time um, of incarcerated individuals. This is a real constant reality in our system, but I mean, I don't know the last time it was sort of this on um, this on display. We see that they just very often don't really care about what happens to the people in jails and prisons. And again, many of these people have not even been convicted of a crime. Not that I think being convicted of a crime means that the government should treat you with total disregard, but you know, any of us could be arrested tomorrow and not be convicted of something and um, really experience this this total, you know, um, callousness towards towards that the government has towards people who are incarcerated. So that I think would be the first thing. I think the second thing is when you don't have a strong safety net, um, and this goes again beyond criminal justice, but I think it's I think it's especially apparent here. When you don't have a strong safety net, when you're not creating environments for people where they can be at least healthy, right? Um, this is going to harm those communities so much more. And we see that in a place like Rikers Island, where the rate of infection is ten times what it is outside of the outside of the jail, you know, in New York City. Um, this is, it really highlights sort of every kind of inequality and every kind of issue that we've discussed um, and that we've highlighted over the past, you know, couple of years at the appeal and that I've been focused on for the past decade. And then I would say the last thing is like what we're seeing in some places is that people are being released. Um, not enough, and not as quickly as we would like, but in some states, up you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred, maybe even more um, incarcerated individuals have been released because of what's going on in in, in prison, um, in prisons and jails, uh, in terms of the infection. And we're not seeing a rapid crime increase or anything, right? We're not seeing really a crime increase at all. We're not seeing these people who we are convinced we need to be locked up because of public safety, quote unquote, actually have an impact on public safety. What that tells us, and at the same time, I should say, like we see a lot of um, law enforcement unable to work because they've been infected. So I think I think it's something like um, a third of the NYPD has called out sick now, like, um, and those are people actually on the streets. And again, crime isn't going up, right? What it tells us is that like our criminal justice system is too big. Um, if you can let out a lot of people and they, you know, and that these like fears that exist that these people will go out and commit all these other crimes because they're not, you know, in a, in a whatever, four by six cell or, you know, whatever it may be, you are, that those are unfounded fears. We actually have a too big system and we can see it pretty clearly because we're trying to kind of rapidly, or some places are kind of trying to more rapidly shrink it than they would have um, otherwise. And there has been no impact, no negative impact of that. So hearing what you said, Josie, I'm curious, in your opinion, what can readers or listeners of the news do if they're moved to get involved in advocacy at this time? What are some ways that people on the outside can support efforts to help stop the spread of COVID-19 among incarcerated communities? So the number one thing that you can do is 
contact your leaders, whether that's your mayor, you know, your prison system officials in the state, your local DA, um, your local sheriff or chief of police, the governor, and the president, right? And maybe your local congresspeople, depending on, you know, what's going on in your city, town, um, and state, you you can ask them to make sure they're testing in prisons and jails, to inform the community about what that testing looks like, to release numbers of um, of people from prison and jail, and not just one or two people, not just 10 or 15, but you know, to the extent possible to uh, thousands of people um, to make sure that it's, you know, we're not basically sentencing people to death by sentencing them to any time in prison and jail. And that's, that's the real risk here, right? And so you can advocate for mass release um, just from home, just by reaching out to the, your elected officials and demanding that they really address this problem. And really, if people don't reach out, it's very unlikely it happens. And so it requires the work of everybody you know, who is just listening or maybe doesn't know that much about that issue and wants to do something or cares to actually make those calls to see any level of change. Um, and then the other thing you can do is stay informed to the extent possible. So make sure that you um, are, you know, demanding that your local news cover this issue at the local prisons or jails, wherever you may live, that you're remembering to kind of look at who's suffering, you know, in our correctional facilities as much as we look at who's suffering outside of them. And finally, as somebody who lives and breathes the news, I'd love to learn about how you balance staying informed with self-care. Can you share any advice on how to navigate the privilege and desire to consume news without letting the gravity and abundance of it overwhelm us? You know, <laughs> I wish I could like provide some good advice. And the truth is that I really, I can't. I'm, um, I am reading too much news. I'm online too much. I'm letting this like, uh, I'm letting this impact sort of my day to day in a way that probably is too much. And um, I have a toddler at home. I'm having another baby in September, and so that like added um, level of responsibility is particularly um, makes this a particularly stressful time. Obviously, I'm not going through what you know many many people are going through, but. I think we're all sort of experiencing this like collective, like mass anxiety, right? Um, and it's like <laughs> I don't know how good it is for any of our long term, our long term health. Um, I will say that like there is something terrifying and almost, uh, almost calming about the fact that like there is not much more. I can do, right? Like I can stay home, I can demand policy change, but I am not writing the laws, I'm not signing the laws, I'm not, um, I, I can't help what everybody else does. And recognizing sort of the limited ability to control something like a global pandemic is probably, <laughs> probably in a lesson um, that you know, in many ways is actually helping me, um, despite the fact that it's also 
you know, making me more stressed out. And I watch a lot of, currently I watch a lot of Disney movies. My two-year-old is very into the Muppets. He's very into um, the, Lion, the Lion King. And, um, you know, that's always a good way to see a major moments of stress that end up okay. So I'm trying to remember that this is not forever. Um, and that one day, I don't know that we'll ever get back to what we were before, um, but it's an opportunity for kind of a new, a, a change to some of the systems that exist in this country, um, to a new consideration of, of wealth inequality, racial inequality, class inequality um, that exists in America, and a chance for us to change something um, in a moment that is so drastic and so scary. So that's my optimistic thought that like I deeply believe that um, there's going to be so much loss in this moment and an opportunity for a new, a, a kind of a new beginning at the same time. Josie, thanks so much for talking and sharing your time with us in this critical moment. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really happy that you guys are putting this together and I'm happy for all of your work. To stay up to date on news about COVID-19's effect on incarcerated communities, visit theappeal.org. This episode was mixed by Robert Pollack with support from Elizabeth Fiore, researched and hosted by myself, Kate Camel, and produced by Kate Messner for PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program. Thanks for listening to Temperature Check. <laughs>